So I'm curious, did anybody find out anything that was life-changing in that? I mean, anything that uh, you found out you thought, oh, I did not know that about their Christmas. Uh, anything? Uh, nothing grand or anything? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. Brooke, what, what is the story we need to know? A tree named Andrew. There you go. I'll tell you what. Well, there's a good one. What else? What about others? Other things? I'm curious. Now they're thinking maybe Lizzie should tell one. No, they're nothing. No, no. Lizzie says, how dare you call my name in public. Uh, I, I will have you run over later. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Christmas time is actually, it's one of those times, it's a, it's a lot of fun, um, and it's one of those times of the year where, you know, kids especially, I mean, there's this sense of just wide-eyed anticipation, you know, they start counting the days down, you know, they're like, we were just out with some of the grandkids the other day, and they were like, Papa, you know, Christmas is only a month away. I thought, it's Thanksgiving. Good night. You know, but I mean, they were like so excited. It's only a month away. Just in case you're wondering, they were telling me about a few ideas that I might want to consider. Uh, just in case I was out shopping and happened to run across things that I needed to spend money on. And so uh, they were telling me, kids, kids get excited because they began to anticipate Christmas morning. They anticipate presents. Um, some of them anticipate the birth of Jesus. Uh, most of the time they anticipate presents. But um, that hasn't always been the case. You know, I mean, Christmas has not been around like all that long. In fact, if you look at our uh, at our calendars, they are marked, you know, 2017 A.D., meaning, you know, Anadomini, in the year of our Lord. So the year, the, the earth has been around more than 2017 years. You know, it's it's been around a little bit longer. And so you begin to look and you think, wow, uh, so what went on? Well, for years, absolutely nothing at all. In fact, for years, there wasn't like people didn't say, uh, what do you think this season is about? Or, you know, what do you think you're looking forward to about Christmas? There wasn't Christmas. I mean, for years, you just went on and it was a day like any other. You just went about your days. You know, I mean, if you went to uh, if you went back to Bethlehem, you know, some 2000 years ago and you would have walked around there, all you would have seen was people going about their jobs, people working, people doing different things. And then you know, you would see people talking about there's a census. All these new people are in town. They're filling up everything. You can't get around. Traffic is horrible. I couldn't get my camel out there. You know, I mean, it was just, you know, all sorts of things like that. But you, you know, basically life was just like it had always been. And then it wasn't. Because all of a sudden, God himself decided to invade earth and come in the form of a man and come so that we could begin to experience the very life that we've longed for all of our days. The one that we pursue by running after so many goofy things around here. You know, that's the very life that God has really longed to give us for for such a long time, for over 2,000 years. And so they began to look at that, you know, for hundreds of years, people have been told by God to expect and to prepare for that day. If you look in the Old Testament, there's 
reference after reference after reference where God says, you know, you need to be getting ready. This is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to go on. And yet, were people ready? No. I mean, they missed it largely. I mean, so many people that were alive then, God himself in the flesh came into their town. And they just missed it. Now, I mean, some of you have been around here, you know, and you've seen something like one, some celebrity or something's been here on campus. You know, I was looking a couple of years ago and I saw a picture of a couple of our guys mugging with Mark Wahlberg or some different person, you know, and they're like, someone else was like, oh, I missed them. How did I not see them? I was right over by that building, you know, and they were all excited. I mean, that'd be one thing. You miss a celebrity, you know, you're kind of like, oh, well, you know, I mean, now certain celebrities, you really don't care. But I mean, you know, other celebrities, you think maybe so. But, you know, can you imagine, you mean God was right over by that building and I missed him? Yeah. He was right there, sitting right there on that bench. Big bench. But, I mean, he was sitting right there. You know, I mean, you just sit there, you think, this was how these people were. They had missed the entire thing. And what we're going to look at tonight is this whole uh, concept, this concept called Advent. And uh, it's something that uh, some of you may have, uh, you may have been familiar with it, you may not. Uh, Christians today call the four Sundays or the four weeks leading up to Christmas Advent. And it's to be, you know, it's a time to be celebrated. It's time for we remember in a variety of ways. Now, in your tradition, you may have uh, celebrated that. You may have not. I know that they didn't much when I was growing up. But, I mean, it was one of those things that it's, it's a time when sometimes they celebrate with candles, sometimes they celebrate with little calendars, especially with chocolates inside. People really like those, you know. And so they sit around and they have those. Other times it's with nativity scenes. But all in all, it's one of those things that's to help us to remember, to prepare, and to anticipate the birth of Christ. To prepare and to anticipate, to get ready for that. Now, for the longest time, you know, that wasn't something that was big. In fact, early on, uh, Advent was really about the second coming of Christ. When people were celebrating that in early church history, that's what they celebrated. And then about the 6th century, they began to change that. And they began to say, hey, you know what? We don't need to just celebrate his second coming. We need to celebrate, you know, when he came to earth in the first place and celebrate his birth. And so in about the 6th century, they took that in and all of church began to kind of uh, take that on and began to... Uh, embrace that. And in the services that are held in Advent services, there's kind of this custom of, you know, celebrating all three aspects, the aspect of, you know, Jesus coming at his birth, the aspect of the Holy Spirit coming uh, upon us, and then the aspect of Jesus again, once coming uh, later on. So Advent is this term, it comes from a Latin word, Adventus, and what it really means is arrival or coming. And the idea behind that is that we are to be expecting, we're to be preparing, we're to live with a wide-eyed sense of anticipation that God could come in and intervene in our lives at any moment, at any time. Advent is really, it's also, it's a time of just kind of waiting. It's a type of anticipation. You know, for years, for, in fact, for centuries um, before Christ was born, there was this promise. God had made a promise to a guy named Abraham. And he told Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you with, with descendants throughout the earth. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham has this promise and he's, you know, he's kind of sitting on, he's getting older and older and older. Finally, he has a son and you're kind of thinking, one son, 
doesn't look like it's blessing the whole earth. You know, it's kind of going on through there. You progress on about 14 generations later, and you come up to a guy named King David. And all of a sudden, there, you know, you begin to look and you think, maybe something's beginning to happen. Because David now is taking over the whole kingdom. He's over all of this area. He's over all these tribes. The nation itself is beginning to expand. And there's this sense of anticipation. There's this sense of, wow, God's really going to do something in the midst of Israel. And yet, you know, David dies. His son comes in. The nation expands even more, and they're thinking, oh, maybe so. But then you begin to wait a little bit longer. Solomon's son comes in, and the whole nation falls apart. And actually, within a few hundred years, they're hauled off into captivity in Babylon. And yet Malachi comes along. After they return, God brings them out of captivity and brings them back to Jerusalem. And when he does... Malachi writes this, this uh, thing to him. He says that my name will be great amongst the nations. God saying this to them. He says, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you're one of the people back then, you're kind of thinking, really? You're, I mean, we just got out of captivity. Things are not going well. This has not been good. And you begin to look at them. You begin to think, wow, there's, there's nothing really for them to really anticipate. There's nothing really to go on. And then it gets worse. 400 years passes and no word from God at all. 400 years. Now, most of you, I mean, if four days pass and something doesn't go on, you're kind of like, oh, oh, oh kind of antsy. You know, haven't heard anything in four days. Four hundred years. A little bit longer than, than you actually think about. You know, four hundred years. They begin to wonder things like, hey, you know, did, did, did we just imagine all this stuff? I mean, did, did we just kind of dream this up? I mean, where, where did this come from? And there's this sense amongst them of, you know, what, what happened? And then, all of a sudden... God moves. And born there in Bethlehem is the Son of God Himself. God incarnate in the flesh, lives a perfect life, shoulders all of our sin upon Himself at the cross, dies, is risen from the dead three days later to offer us an opportunity at life that none of us deserve. The weight of of Advent was worth it. The wait was worth it because what they saw, they saw God explode on the scene. Everything was different. Advent is about that. Advent is about waiting, but it's about expectancy. It's about preparation. It's not about something you just kind of get out at one time of year with the rest of your Christmas decorations and then pack up and you know you don't think about it again for another year. But Advent is to be something that we are to live in a constant state of all the time. Wondering what God might show up, wondering what he might do next. So one of the things I want us to look at a little bit tonight is not only the subject of Advent, but the subject, you know, what are you waiting for? You ever, you ever thought much about that? Often you go through your day and your semester, your relationships, and there can be kind of a, a, a dull sense of sameness to it. 
Little of that having to do with your circumstances, but more of it having to do with your sense of anticipation. And have you ever thought to yourself, what, you, what is it that you really anticipate? I mean, I know, that, you know the answer, uh, Jesus, because that's the answer to everything. You know, Jesus, no, that's not the answer. I mean, what do you really anticipate? What is it that you really expect and prepare for? For some of you, it's the weekend. You know, you think, oh, just one more day. For some of you, you know, it's like school is almost over. I am expecting and preparing for that. You know, there's a sense of anticipation. For some of you, it's a date. You know, it's like, hmm, yes, I could expect and prepare for that. You know, there's a variety of things it is. But, you know, there's not a sense a lot of times that we are anticipating that God could act in history. He could intervene in our lives right where they are, and we could be a part of that. For most of us, that's not the thing. But that's exactly what God wants to do. In fact, the New Testament encourages us to live in a state of expectant preparedness all the time. And my question I have for you is, how would it alter your expectations and preparations if you knew that God was at work and that he might choose to step in and intervene in history at any moment along the way? How would that begin to really impact the way you would go about things. Do you think that you would view your life and your relationships in the same way that you view everything right now? Or, or, do, you, or do you think you might view those differently? What I would like to think a little bit about tonight is this, that to live in a state of Advent is to expect and prepare that God would be working in us and he would be working through us all the time that he would be working in us and he would be working through us. So the first thing, you know, expect and prepare for God to work in you. I don't know about you, but how many of you, you know, you kind of wake up and sometimes you wake up and you just kind of feel like, uh, the day is starting again. Kind of like, you know, you're under this cloud. I mean, I'll, I'll be having conversations with people and I'll say, Hey, how are you doing? Good. Under the circumstances. And I think, why are you always under there? You know, it's like, well, no. and it's like we wake up with this cloud over us and we just kind of go through our day. And it's just like, you know, like it's not something we really anticipate, not something we, we, you know, enjoy, not something we expect anything out of. We just kind of go through the dull sameness of the days. But God really wants to be working in your life. He really wants to be doing things in your life every single day and for you to live with a sense of preparedness. For some, they don't live with that sense and, and that's because they don't have a relationship with him. For some of you, that may be the case. For some of you, you know, you may be thinking, yeah, life seems pretty, uh, pretty hopeless. Well, you know, apart from a relationship with Christ, that's very understandable. I, I can guarantee you. So maybe the, the thing for you is, you know, you need to begin a relationship with him. You know, if you have questions, you need to get answered. Well, I'd encourage you, get those answered. In fact, the longer you hold on to questions, the less they become questions, the more they become excuses. So, you know, look for what are the answers to those questions, get them answered. But boy, look to begin a relationship with him. You know, and the question I'd have for you there, you know, what are, what are you waiting for? What is it that you're really waiting for? 
as you begin to think about that. For others, it's not that you don't have a relationship, but what it is is that you really need to learn to walk with him. Um, you need to allow his word to really begin to reshape your perspective, to really reshape your values. And my question for you would be, again, the same. What what are you waiting for in that? What is it that you're waiting for to get going in that? True change in your life really only begins to take place as you respond to God's word with a real sense of humility. That you begin to, to bring your life before God's word. And you don't sit in judgment of God's word, but you allow God's word to sit in judgment of you. That you allow his word to influence and impact you. And James James brings that up in, in James uh, 1, in uh, verse 21, he says this. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. He said, you know, in humility, receive that. Why? Well, because if we walk up and we go, well... Let me hear what it says and I'll decide what I'm going to do. Then really, you know, God's word isn't going to impact our lives at all. But if we walk into the situation with God's word where we say, whatever it says, I will align my life with that. Then our lives really begin to change. They begin to impact. In the next verse, in verse 22, he says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Have you ever noticed that there's something that's really, um, it's, it's very subtle about hearing the word of God. You actually think you've done something. You ever notice that you'll hear something, you'll go, Oh yeah. Or you learn something. You're like, Hmm. You know, like I, I know early on, I would hear something about having a quiet time. And I think, wow, I pretty much got this quiet time thing down. Because I'd heard him, you know, I mean, and I'll tell you what, if you want to get worse than that, memorize a couple of verses on it. Then you are a bonafide expert. You know, you not only know about it, but you now have verses memorized on it so you can tell people about it. But you know what? There was a whole different thing. And it was actually doing it, actually putting it into practice. And that's what he talks about here. He says, be doers of the word. Put it into practice. See, that's where the real difference begins to take place in your life. When you not only begin to learn something with it, but you actually begin to put it into practice. And then in verse 23 and 24, he says this. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So he says, you know, if if you look at that, You're as bad as the guy that wakes up in the morning and kind of staggers over there to the mirror and looks in there and goes, oh, you know, horrible. You know, I mean, my gosh. And then he kind of walks away and he thinks, yeah, you know, if I put a hat on, people probably won't know. You know, so he walks on, puts a hat on, walks out. He scares people to death all day long. You know, they're like, good night. What happened? He's like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I just forgot. Forgot what I look like. Forgot what I look like. You know, I mean, now some of you, you know, you look at that and you think, Who would ever do that? We would. We would. It all depends on how you look at God's word. You know, if you look at it and you accept it as something that really speaks to you and you accept it as something that you really need to humble yourself and and learn from and learn with, it's all about, you know, is God's word 
really uh, this this thing that that really transforms your life that you really allow to to shape your heart to shape your life. You know, he brings up this point about mirrors. Now, mirrors. What's the purpose of mirrors? I mean, mirrors show you things in your life you need to change. That's one of the reasons girls look so much better than guys most of the time. They use mirrors. Guys rarely, you know, you, you, you walk up to a girl right now and you say, hey, do you have like a mirror? Oh, yeah. You know, they'll pull out of their purse. They have a little mirror here, a little mirror there. Or they stop by cars and they're looking in cars and they're like, you know, they're, I mean, every time you pass by them, they're looking in some kind of a mirror. Guys rarely look in a mirror. It's obvious. I mean, you know, you look at them, you think they don't really hit mirrors very much, do they? You know, you're like, no, no, not very much. Not very much. But, you know, you, you get around them, and I know in our family growing up, it was like girls would occupy. I mean, we had two girls in the house. Two girls, four guys. It was like three to one time in front of the mirror, girls to guys. I mean, there were half as many, but they were there like all the time, you know. And that, that was just very different. Guys, really not so much. In fact, one of the things that we, we talk about sometimes, laugh about, is our, our family. We would get together and, like, eat meals, and our, uh, our kids were rather sloppy sometimes. And so, uh, you know, one of the things they would do is, like, uh, they would have certain meals they could manage to get all over themselves, um, things like spaghetti. And uh, they would get that, and, like, our youngest was, our youngest was like that. He was sitting there one day, and he's eating and stuff, and... I look over at him and I see, and there's like this whole spaghetti thing just kind of worked its way. It looks like his mouth is expanding, you know. I mean, I, I'm looking, I said, Samuel. And he's like, what? And, like, and so he kind of gets up and, you know, looks over here. And he looks over and he sees this thing and he's kind of like, cool, cool. And he comes over and he's kind of, you know, arranging it to where it looks like some sort of a mustache or something, you know. And he's kind of like, you know, he thinks that's the coolest thing in the world, you know. And. And his brother's kind of like, oh, hey, you know, and they're kind of, you know, uh, and they're, they're kind of going, you know, and the next thing you know, they're all looking kind of sloppy and stuff like that. Now, for them, that's, that's kind of how they approached it. The girls, I mean, if I was to say to Melinda or to say to Jennifer, hey, you know, you've kind of got spaghetti sauce. They didn't go, really? Cool. And start, you know, no, I mean, for them, it was like, you know, mirror comes out, fix it, move on. Why? Well, for the boys, a mirror was a point of entertainment. Uh, For the girls, a mirror was a point of action. You know, the thing you have to ask yourself as you look into the mirror of God's word, is that a point of entertainment or is it a point of action for you? You know, when you look into God's word, you go, oh man, look at that verse. That is so cool. I love that verse. Put that on something and put it up on my wall. I love that. I may have that stenciled on me somewhere. You know, I mean, just, I love that verse. Or, Do you take and say, wow, that verse really points out an area in my life that I need to change. And God, I want to just bow my heart before you and really change that because I, I can really see a need there. So the way you respond to God's word makes all the difference in the world. In fact, humble submission allows you to really grow and to change. But there's also, there's consequences when you don't. Now, there's a little slide right here that I didn't put all the words up on. So let me show you this slide here. Just like this right here. All of us go through experiences like every single day. You encounter different things in your life. I mean, many, you've had many, many experiences throughout this whole day. Now, every time you have an experience, you've got two choices. 
the choice on the top is this. You respond to it like the word says. So you have to actually trust that what God said is true. And you choose to respond like the word says. Or you take a different vantage point, like the bottom arrow right here. And you choose just a natural response. So like, you know, let's say you... You walk over here and you're getting ready to walk out of here in a minute or something. And someone walks up to you and and they say something to you that is kind of snotty. And, you know, you have a choice. You could say, hmm. Now, immediately you think of something like, you know, uh, Proverbs 15.1, where it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up a quarrel. And you think, you know what, just let that go. Yeah. And you kind of sit there for a minute, and you think, okay. And you do that. That could be one of the ways you do it. Or they walk up and they say something to you, and you think, I don't remember that verse anyway. I, that's why I lost my verse back. And, and boy, you just lied into them, and man, you just go at And then before long, you guys are going back and forth and back and forth, and everybody's going, wow, look how they love each other. Uh, and, you know, you just kind of wonder about, now see, Every single time that you have experiences, which you have thousands of them every day, every single time that you choose to respond in the way that God has said through his word, you get a little more keen of seeing and you get a little bit more to where you can hear better the things God is saying to you. Every time you choose not to, you get a little more dull of hearing. You get a little more dim of seeing. And that's exactly what Matthew talks about in Matthew 13. But what happens is you get a little bit more of a hardness of heart. And see, that's the problem. Hardness of heart, that's a self-inflicted wound. It's something we do when we fail to respond to the word of God. And so what you want to do is, you know, you realize these people that missed out on Jesus, it wasn't that they hadn't heard about it. It wasn't like they hadn't heard with everybody else. It was that choice after choice after choice after choice, they had set themselves up to where they totally missed the very thing God wanted to do in their lives when he intervened. So what's the answer to that? Well, don't just get in the word. Get the word in you. Prepare by humbly applying and responding to the word of God. And as you do, expect God to change your life. Expect him to begin to give you a life of real meaning and purpose. So one of the things you want, you want God, you want to have a sense of expectancy. You want to have a sense of preparation of God working in you. But you also want to have the same thing of God working through you. You want to expect God to really work through us. Now, I don't know about you, but I see a lot of times, I think people lose a sense of anticipation. I think they lose a sense of expectancy when they just get bogged down with just the details of life. Have you ever done that? You ever just sit around and you're like, oh, you just, you feel like there's so many things you have to remember and so many things you have to do that your sense of excitement is just kind of gone. You just kind of sit there and kind of, and you just kind of go through that. But You can solve that. You know, it's one of the things I love about Paul and about Jesus is that so often what I feel like when you're you're reading them, they'll take all of this stuff. It seems like all these details are swirling around and they boil it down to like one thing. You know, Jesus will say things like one thing is needed. 
And you're like, one thing? You know, all these people are running around doing all this. One thing is needed. Or, you know, you, they'll come up to him and they'll say, Lord, what, what's, the, what's the great commandment? He'll say, it's this one. And he'll say, everything rests on these two commandments. Everything. And you're like, everything? Paul does that. Paul, Paul brings things up. And one of the things he brings up in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love. One of the things you want to do as you begin to expect God to work through you, as you begin to prepare for God to work through you, begin to live a life of love. Or if you say, well, I already do that. Well, great. Continue to live a life of love. But work on that. Work on growing in that. Work on getting better. One of the things you find about that, you don't have to be exceptionally mature or smart or gifted to live a life of love. You just have to be willing. In fact, you know, I I think sometimes people look and they're like, you know, I really like deep things about the Word of God. I think, well, you want to get really deep with the Word of God? In the first place, do it. And in the second place, begin to really love other people. That's about as deep as God really goes. He really wants us to learn how to love other people. So how do you do that? How do you practically love others? And I'd like to give you Four quick ways that I think you can do that. One, love buries things. Love buries things. Proverbs 12.10 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. So love begins to bury things. In Proverbs 17.9 it says, He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. If you're going to learn to really love people... One of the things you have to do is you have to learn to take offenses that you may feel from them and learn to just bury those. Learn to get rid of those. Now, we don't tend to do that. Have you ever noticed? I mean, not that you've done this, but I know you know others that have. Uh, None of you have. But what we tend to do is when people have offended us, we put those in our trophy case, great offenses against me. And, uh, you know, every so often someone else will do one. We all, I'll put that at the forefront, great offenses against me. And every so often what we do is we take them down and polish them. You know, we make sure that name and date is on there. And we polish those up and then we rehearse those to other people so that they're aware of all the great offenses that have occurred against me. And uh, we, we do, but you know what scripture says? Don't do that. Don't do that. In, in fact... Get rid of those. Um, in 1 Corinthians thirteen five, one of the things he says is, you know, um, just love keeps no record of wrongs. So in other words, don't rehearse it. Don't just keep going over it. You know, in bearing offenses, what you're doing is you're learning to act in love. Now, I'm not talking there about suppressing and not dealing honestly with things or things like that. I'm saying, no, do those very things. Deal with them, take them out, acknowledge them, and then forgive them, get rid of them, and move on. And leave offenses behind. Bury offenses. Now, many of you are going to be headed back home for the holidays. This would be a great opportunity to begin to put this into practice. Some of you in the space between here and your abode, 
need to bury some things. And I'm not talking relatives, okay? You need to bury some offenses maybe against relatives, but you need to bury some things. You need to get rid of some things out of your life because you know what? You're not going to really be able to love those people the way God wants you to love them if you don't get rid of those. The second thing, love plans good for others. Now, in Proverbs 14, 22, uh, the author of Proverbs, um, he asks a question, but it's really making a statement. He says this, Do not those who plot evil go astray, but those who plan what is good find love and faithfulness. You know, in the relationships you're in, you need to plan good for people. Now, a lot of times we think we've done good if we just haven't planned bad. You know, we think, well, I haven't done anything wrong to them. Well, that's good. But have you done anything good to them? You know, you need to learn to plan good. It's very easy to just get busy in our lives and just not plan good. Um, There again, it's not to plan anything bad. But as you think about loving your roommates or loving your family or loving your friends... Are you planning good for them? Are there things you're doing where you think, yeah, you know, I'm just going to plan this just because I just think it would be good for them and they would just like it. I'm just going to do that. Now, most of the time we think, well, I would like them to do that for me, but I'm not thinking about doing that for them. But there's a reason. I'm busy. But see, they have all the time in the world. But that's really not true. I mean, we all have time for what we want to make time for. So, you know, the thing you have to ask yourself, are you planning good for those you love? Third thing, love is willing to act in their best interest. In Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, it says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If you really love someone and you see them going in the wrong direction, one of the things you'll do is you'll have a conversation. Now, I know that uh, a lot of times what, you know, I I hear people and they're like, that doesn't seem kind. That doesn't seem like it's gracious. It doesn't seem like it's loving. It just, you know, I mean, um, you know, I know they're headed for a cliff and I really see them driving right towards the edge, but you know, I don't want to do any damage to the relationship, so I'm going to go down to the bottom and plan a nice memorial service for them. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And the answer is like, no. No, you need to be willing to say something to someone. You need to be willing to speak to them. You need to be willing to say, hey, you know what? The way you're headed there, that's, that's going to be harmful for you. That's not good. Or you know that attitude? Yeah, you need to lose that, you know, like back there somewhere years ago, you know. You need to help them. You need to be willing to act in their best interest. You need to be willing to really help them to do that. Now, for some, that means, you know, if they don't have a relationship with the one who can bring their life together, if they don't have a relationship that really helps them to actually love others in the first place, well, one of the very first things you could do is, if you're acting in their best interest is to share with them and help them to understand how they can do that. But act in their best interest. And the fourth thing, last thing there. Love sees others for what they can become. Love sees others for what they can become. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, when I first landed at school, um, you know, I I think I was about as goofy as the day is long. Now, 
many of you, you know, you couldn't even relate to that. But, you know, it was like I look back now and I think, you know, um, dumb. Dumb just on so many things. Now, not so much intellectually, but just dumb about life, dumb about relationships, dumb about just pretty much any area you can get dumb in. Now, you know what? If you mix dumb with obnoxious, you pretty much had me at 18. Obnoxious and dumb. And yet I found a friend, and this guy, uh, he found me, actually, you know, this guy named Mike. And he would come around, and I mean, every time I got around him, it seemed like I walked away more encouraged. I mean, sometimes he would just have to look for things to encourage me about. Like, oh, look, your shoes match today. That's good. Uh, I mean, you know, things like that, you know, or, you know, my, but you're, you're sitting up straight today. That's, that's good. You know, I mean, just small things. But, I mean, he would find things all the time. And you know what? More and more and more, what I found with myself was, as he began to do that, I found myself wanting to actually become the person that he was describing. I would sit there and look, I'd think, you know, I don't really think that's true, but I'd like to be that way. Maybe I'll work on that. Maybe I'll work on that. You know, you see this over and over. I mean, you see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus talks to Peter. Peter first comes up. Peter has this great you know, problem. He just opens his mouth to exchange feet, you know, and Jesus comes up to him and he says to Peter, I am going to call you Peter. You are the rock. And upon, you know, this declaration of faith, I will build my church in your light. I'm, I'm sure the other guys were going, Peter, are you kidding me? I mean, because every time, I mean, You know, he's the only one in Scripture that we see that has the privilege of getting rebuked by God the Father and God the Son. You know, that was Peter. You know, at one point, Jesus is over there and um, Jesus says, Guys, by the way, I'm going to be headed up here to Jerusalem. I am going to uh, I'm going to die and uh, I'm going to be raised. And Peter goes, Jesus pulls him aside. You know, this is not good. And, And then what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So he was willing to speak the truth and, and talk to him there. You know, a little while later, you know, he's going along and he has Peter along with him. He takes Peter, James, and John. They go up to this mount where Jesus is transfigured before them. And and it says, if you read read the Gospels, which I'd encourage you to read the Gospels. They're really good. And you read there and he says, and Peter, not knowing what to say, said, uh, you know, that was Peter. Just opens his mouth, all sorts of stuff comes out, you know, and then you hear a word from heaven, this is my son, listen to him, and all of a sudden Peter's like, yeah, just planning on doing that, you know, kind of steps back, you know, and yet Jesus over and over looks at Peter, and he sees Peter as the guy who is going to lead this band of men, and you're like, Peter? Are you kidding? Well, you fast forward just a little bit, and after the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up. There's all of a sudden all these people out here, thousands of people all gathered here for this Feast of Pentecost. And they're there, and they look up, and and the disciples are there, and they're speaking in all the different languages of these people and and giving them the gospel. And some of these guys go, these guys must be drunk. And Peter goes, and all the disciples go, oh, you know, because they know he's going to open his mouth again. And Peter opens his mouth and he says, that's not true. That's not so. These people aren't drunk. This is what was spoke, spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And he quotes Joel 2, 38. And he begins to go on there. And all of a sudden, everyone goes, whoa. And 3,000 come into the kingdom. Now, was Peter, did he go from being a guy who spoke all the time to just a little quiet, mousy guy? No. He became a guy who really had the same personality, the same giftings, the same impulses. But they were under the control of God. Now, how did that come about in his life? One of the big ways was somebody loved him and saw him for somebody that he wasn't at all at that point. And they began to really love him like that. Now, my question for you is, you know, you know, may you have people like that in your life, but how do you do that? How do you actually love people in any of those four ways? How... How do you find it in yourself to make time to plan good for others? How do you find it in in your time to see other people for what they can become? How do you do that? Well, what I would submit to you is this. The only way that is possible is if you have first experienced that love from God himself. In fact, if you haven't, you know, then to think you're going to pass that on to somebody else, well, that's, that's a nice dream. But, you know, as you begin to really live in that, as you begin to experience God doing those four things for you every day, then you find doing them for others just to be a natural byproduct of that as you begin to walk with him. So how do you prepare to love people like that? Think through the folks that God's brought into your life, family, friends, teachers. Begin to think through how can you practically love them like that how can you do that and as you do expect god to show up expect god to bless it expect god to intervene in their life expect god to turn some of them from folks who are getting you know rebuked right and left to folks who are transforming people for the kingdom expect god to work wonders in their lives I'd like you to think for a minute, what would it look like here if each one of us began to expect and prepare for God to be at work at any moment in our lives? What what would that begin to look like? I think one of the things that would happen is, you know, there would be people that were known for, boy, those people really deeply walk with God. They're really allowing God to shape their lives. They're really allowing him to shape their hearts, to shape their values. They're really allowing him to change them because you know what they do? They humbly bow themselves before God's word. And the other thing that would be true is that each week we would discover new ways that God had been active and had been working in people's hearts and lives. And... Thirdly, but maybe most of all, we we would see others who their lives would be impacted as we love. We'd be seeing people that were, you know, had not experienced that love before and had come to Christ. We'd be seeing people growing. We'd be seeing people, you know, flocking to be around some folks who would legitimately love them and not just talk about it, but actually do it. So... The real question I would have for you as we go into this season, as we begin to head home, and as you think about Advent, is what are you waiting for? 
what are you waiting for to get busy doing that? You know, what, what, what's it going to take? But let me encourage you. Begin to move out in expecting God to show up and work in your life. Begin to move out expecting Him to show up and work in the lives of people that you are actively trying to love and reach out to. And it'll be a very different season. Let me pray for us, and we'll invite the band back up. Father, I pray that we would take and uh, be doers of your word, not just hearers. How easy it is to fool ourselves and to think that because we have knowledge in some areas that we... uh, are actually accomplishing anything. Father, help us to uh, really take your word and humbly apply it to our lives, especially in the area of uh, what you said, Jesus, when you said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, in that you have love one for another. Help us to really live that out in practical ways every single day. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.